I'm just curious, do we have any art enthusiasts here? I know there's some of you who are just too bashful to raise your hand. Art enthusiasts. Like, you've studied art. Do you, I remember taking classes in, is this still too far away? Because I feel like I'm not loud enough. I keep bending it forward. Let's try that. Art enthusiasts. I remember taking classes in middle school where you had to study all of these different periods in art. But are any of you art enthusiasts? Pam? I figured you probably were. Anyone else? Isn't this beautiful? Mm, Wouldn't you want this hanging on your wall? Do you realize that this piece of art, if you wanted this hanging on your wall, you'd probably have to spend $120,000 to buy this piece of art to hang on your wall. Isn't that astounding? Does anyone, is any art enthusiast actually able to tell me who is the artist behind this fine piece of sketchery? Anyone? Did I see a hand? Who knows? You know Pam? Uh, it looks prehistoric, but it could be Picasso. It is Picasso. Way to go, Pam. That's right. And Picasso didn't stop here with this beautiful work of art. These are a, a field of bulls, apparently, that he was trying to draw. I noticed how I said that, trying to draw, because i got to be honest. For years, as I was growing up, what in the world is with my microphone? For years, as I was growing up, parents would ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be an artist. And then that stopped when I realized I had no talent. Okay? That's the case. But even I think I could do this. You know, I think I could sketch something like this. I don't think it would be purchased for $120,000. Look at this. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Also a Picasso. I have no idea the dollar amount, but this is a guitar. We know that because he titled it a guitar. I'm not trying to mock Picasso because I, you know, he's well known. He's well known for a reason, but this is Picasso's guitar. But he also, he doesn't stop with just guitar. He's got other instruments. This is a violin. I mean, this man is incredible. And not only all of this stuff, he wears a beret. And that is one of the coolest things that artists get to do. And that's perhaps when I was growing up, why I really wanted to be an artist. But no, I I understand. Okay, someone may look at that as like, yeah, I'd, I'd put those on my wall. Why is there such, I don't want, again, Please understand me. I'm not trying to, to dog on Picasso. But let's look at that, that picture of the bulls in the field. $120,000. Would you spend $120,000? And if you did, why would you do it? There's really only one reason why you would spend $120,000 on that piece. Because of who made it. Same thing with these other two. I mean, do you look at, at these past couple here is like, wow, that is incredible. I mean, yeah, maybe there's brush strokes. Okay, I'm not, again, I'm not the artist. Remember, I had no talent, so I was like, that went out the window. The point of it is, is there's something that really generates a high dollar value for Picasso's stuff, and it's because of who made it. Interestingly, now you're going to get up to what I really find fascinating. Look at this. That's what I call art. It's a giant bug. I don't know what kind of bug it is, whether it's a praying mantis or what. Is that what it is? Wow, pretty good of me, huh? That's why I picked it, because he prays. Okay? <laughs> but look at that. That's incredible. You know, chainsaw art. That's where it's at. Not a brush stroke, but you get a chainsaw fired up and running. These are incredible. Look at this guy. That's, isn't that fantastic? But do you know who these guys are? I couldn't even figure out who these guys were that, that did this, this stuff. Look at this one. I think this one was pretty cool. Like, how did they get the bucket to float? Right? 
This is Abby Peterson is his name. He's the world champion chainsaw carver. And this was basically the piece that he won the world championships with just this last summer in 2022. I mean, it's, it's fabulous. So I was out in the woods with my, my dad and brother and Isaac uh, yesterday working on some tree stands and stuff like that. And I had the chainsaw. And so I was like, I had just looked at some of this stuff. I was like, I'm going to try my hand at chainsaw carving. Okay. I'm going to show you. I got my piece right here. Just a second. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I asked, I asked my dad and I asked Isaac and I asked my brother, what should I, what should I try carving? My brother said, you should carve a fish. It's like, well, I said, why does everyone want a fish? And my dad said, a bear. So I said, same thing. Everyone wants a bear. Isaac said, well, what about an eagle? And I thought long and hard, I decided to do a stump. It looks just like a stump, doesn't it? Man, that's like world championship material right there. That's what I said, okay? No talent. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating to me. It struck me as interesting because I had never heard of this guy. And again, you know, chainsaw art versus painting, I understand there's, there's differences. But it's really, I mean, look at his piece. That's amazing. You know what? This one would probably run, and, and I couldn't find a dollar amount on it, but I'd give you a ballpark from what they would go for between, and this is pretty high, I think, $2,000 to $5,000 for that. And yet you have a sketch drawing of a bunch of bulls in a field for $120,000. Something seems off. Again, please don't understand, I'm not criticizing Picasso, but something feels off with that. And there's only one thing that comes down to why that can be the way that it is, and it boils down to who it was that made it. And now if we take that and we consider this reality of what I just read a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Who made you? And what kind of a value do you have because of the hands that formed you? And then not only that fact that you were created by God, and we're going to see this new creation piece. We're going to see in the passage we look at today a lot of very well-known scriptures. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, you're going to see, hey, I've heard that one before. I've heard that one before. Oftentimes separated, and they're kind of all clumped into this one little treasure box. And I want us, and it's very difficult. I've really struggled with this, and I have a little bit of an idea why. Just now it hit me a little bit, you know, like five minutes ago. But we have all of these little, little wonderful verses in a little bit of a treasure box that actually relate well together that we kind of tend to pull them apart. It's not a criticism again, but I think they really, to be understood well, will do better to be understood together. But what we have here is this picture of that we will be considered this new creation, and then that fact of you've been purchased. Not only did God create you and he made you, but he valued you enough that he would buy back that which was already his because he created it to himself and he would use and spend his own blood to do so. This is, this is amazing. I think this is why I've struggled with this passage today all week long. And it's like, I love it. I absolutely love these verses, but I don't know what to do with them. And I think it's because there's so much emotion and power tied up in these. I feel so inadequate to be able to take and express them. I really think that's where, where, where I came up with this struggle. I don't know how to take this message and bring it to life to people. And so my heart is, Holy Spirit, will you take this powerful picture that we have here and help us to understand who we are, because we're going to see that in this passage, but also then we're going to see this role that we have. We're going to see a motivation, what motivates us to do that which 
we are called to. Oh, do you want me just to dwell on this for just a little bit longer? <laughs> you can take, I'm okay. If you want to take your phones and take a picture of it and just say, wow, look at what my pastor made, that'd be just fine. Okay. So we step into this here. This has been kind of our theme verse. We've got two verses that we look at. This one here in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to look at John chapter 16. And these have just resonated with me as we work through this series. And it's do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The patterns of this world, we look, we, in a way, we looked at it. Our world values esteem. The patterns of this world value that which can make me loftier, that can build me up, like the Picasso. Why do you have that on your wall? Well, it's a Picasso, okay? That, in a sense, that by having that, puts me onto some form of a platform with others in the art world. And others may look at it as like, wow, you spent $120,000 on that. I could have carved you a stump for nothing, you know? But this is that picture. Just, I want you to get your mind on the world values a certain way of thinking. The follower of Christ, we're going to see, has a different way of thinking. And Jesus wants us to have our way of thinking different. He wants it to be transformed. And then we look at this world. The patterns of this world will bring trouble. It's a difficult world that we live in. This has been one of those underwriting themes over and over, week after week. If we looked at these passages, this world is a difficult place to live in. Your struggles are real. Financial struggles are real. Your family struggles are real. Relational struggles are real. Your health struggles are real. These are all very real struggles. And we see Jesus reflects on these. He tells us ahead of time, this is going to be tough on you. Just because you become a follower of Christ doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. In fact, if we really look at what the New Testament says, it's going to be difficult. We don't want it to be difficult. If anyone has ever preached a gospel to you that says, hey, follow Christ, your life is going to be great. I'm not saying that's wrong. And then it's going to be easy. Everything's going to go your way. That's not it. That's not the gospel we see in the scriptures. Now, if someone says, hey, the Lord will transform your life. He's going to change you like crazy. And it's going to be a battle every single day of your life. Then maybe you want to Give some ears to that and consider and hear that. But Jesus says this. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you'll have peace. I've told you you're going to have trouble, but relax. I'm with you. You can have a peace in the midst of this. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. That's easy to say. That's hard to live especially if you're dealing with a lot of struggle and trouble in your life. That's a hard thing to live. And yet, we can rest in what Jesus has said to us in advance. Okay, so we're going to step into this here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As we consider what we're going to find is this picture of who we are. We're going to see this picture of motivation. It's interesting, as I looked at this idea of motivation, there are several things in life that are, are big motivators. We, in a way, talked about them already. Fame. We want to be noted that's why we would buy an expensive painting or something that put it on the wall so that people look as, oh, so-and-so has such and such. I buy a new truck. I buy this highest level of whatever it is, fishing boat. And it's like, oh, wow, look at it. We loft ourselves up in this. And so the idea of it is I'm motivated by what you think of me or how you will build me up. That's a reality. We're also motivated by fear in this world. You know, looking back just in the last couple of years, we know... 
one way or another, we were somehow motivated by fear through the pandemic. Whether it was a fear of getting sick, that was perhaps a very real, and so we responded accordingly. Whether it was a fear of getting someone else sick, whether it was a fear of what are people going to think of me if I do this or don't do this, we're motivated by our, our act, where our actions are a reflection of how we're motivated, and oftentimes fear was a huge one that we saw over and over again over the past couple of years. That hasn't suddenly diminished. Our fears have just changed. We're motivated by fear. If I do this, what are the consequences going to be? I'm afraid of what's going to happen. We're motivated out of obligation. I feel like someone calls me up, hey, I need help moving. <laughs> I don't want to help you move. My back hurts. Okay, we got to usually, usually there's steps, the elevator is broken, whatever it ends up being, the window's not big enough to just shove it out and let it fall on the ground. All the reasons there is just like, oh, moving, but yet what motivates me to do so? It may be just, I feel obligated. What are you going to think of me if I don't? It might be like, you know, I don't want you to have to do that. I'm going to step in and do it. I care enough about you. And it can be something else like that. We're going to look at that here in a little bit. I can be motivated by enjoyment, adrenaline junkies, you know? What motivates you to go on a roller coaster? Nothing. What motivates you to go on a roller coaster? Oh, the sweet. I love the drop. I, yeah, that's, not, that's not for me. What, motivate, what motivates me is this peanut M&Ms. Fear, we look at health, you know. I don't like going to the doctor, okay? Who does, really? I mean, maybe you do if you are a doctor, or maybe you're married to a doctor, then that might be a little bit different than you like going to the doctor. But consider the idea, I don't like going to the doctor. So what motivates me to make that change? Usually it's fear of something of my own health. I had a, a mole at one point that's like, you know, you start getting, it's like, wow, maybe I'm dying of skin cancer, okay? And so you go into the doctor. The doctor looks at you like, well, you're stupid because you're afraid. And then they decide to cut the mole off without using, you know, numbing agents. It's like, what's wrong with you? People don't like to come to you in the first place, okay? And then you just do this. But we react out of ways of fear, and it's something that sometimes we just can't help. But we see it here. This is interesting. Paul talks about fear. And fear for Paul is a motivator. He is motivated by some fear. He says, since then, and this is verse, we'll look at verse 10 in here in a second. We'll look at why. So since then, it also means like therefore. When you see that in the scriptures, we don't talk a lot about this, but you really ought to look, why is this next phrase there? In other words, when it says since then or therefore, it's reflecting back to something that was just previously stated, okay? So since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade, that's an important word, look at that one. We try to persuade others what we are is plain to God. This is kind of a little bit of a separate phrase. We're going to break it down a little bit. We're going to get some real gems here in a little bit. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. This is what it's referring to. So he says, when we know what it is to fear God, Paul is reflecting back to just the previous verse where he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's be honest. You think of sitting before the judgment seat of Christ. If you think, oh, I can't wait. I'm good. I think you're fooling yourself. And this doesn't mean, this is not a message of condemnation, but it's a message of reality. If I feel like I have done a good enough job to sit at the judgment seat of Christ and feel good about myself and what I've done, I have another thing coming. And so Paul recognized that. 
He knew his past. He knew all of, all of his hangups. He knew how he would persecute the church and Christians and even kill them. And so he looks like, how can I look forward to the judgment seat of Christ? I would be fearful. And so what do I do? I'm, I must be reactionary because I see the holiness of God and I can't stay that way. I must change. And so Paul understood at least some way that aspect. But what we see is there's a freedom in it. We looked at that in Galatians. So don't, don't get stuck on that judgment seat aspect, but that points to this reality of fear. Paul, there's a fear motivation that he's experiencing so that each one of us may receive what is due for the things that we've done while in the body, whether good or bad. What does that motivate us to do? A bunch of bad stuff? No. It should motivate us to be aware, okay, God's got something else in mind that we ought to do. Keep that in mind. That's, that's that fear piece that Paul's just talking about. So verse 12 then, he says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you, but we are giving you an opportunity. I want to back up here. Let's go look at this here, this word per, uh, persuade. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade you. The word that Paul's using here is, is really this idea of convince. But it's not just, let me give you an argument. It's, it's not about this let me argue with you. Let's go head to head and argue. He says, let me give you, and this is what it means, let me give you reasons. Let me give you reasons to follow Christ. Let me give you reasons to understand that this gospel. And some of them are words. So don't, don't misunderstand. There is a point where Paul is going to testify with his mouth. But what, we, what he really, I believe, wants us to see here, not only do we want to give the words that they're going to testify to what Jesus has done for him. But Paul's works then match his, his actions match his words. Just, you got to see that. Paul's life, and we're going to see this here too, is just as much, if not more, of the powerful testimony than what his words of the gospel are. And so when he's going to persuade, it's not this bashing of arguments like, oh, let me show you the evidence of what Christ has done in me. And then I want us to see this here. We, what we are is plain to God. In other words, he's, Paul's dealing with the, the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church at this point really have, they've defaulted back to a worldly way of thinking. Exactly what we looked at in Romans 12. They've gone, their mind is back to, this is what's valuable. If you remember your 1 Corinthians passages well, and some of you may, some of you know, may not, but with 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, Paul lays out this challenge to them about spiritual gifts. The Corinthian church in particular was saying, hey, look at us, I have this wonderful spiritual gift. Oh, really? You have that? Well, I've got this. And they're actually fighting amongst each other in the church, trying to build themselves up in lofty. What pattern does that show? It shows a pattern of the world. So the Corinthian church had fallen back into what we looked at in Romans 12, patterns of this world, this way of thinking. And Paul here is, is really correcting them on that. And so what he's, what he's saying, and they're, they're challenging Paul, saying, Paul, oh, what you're offering, it's not going to build us up. It's not going to make us look good. And Paul's answer is, hey, look at this. Our conscience is clear because we know this gospel testimony that we're testifying. We know it, okay? So we know what God... We know who we are in God. It's really what he's saying. What we are is plain to God. God knows our hearts. You guys can, we can pretend, oh, look at how righteous and holy I am. And God can see through it. You can believe all that you want to believe about yourself. But it doesn't change who you really are. Who you really are is plain to God. He knows it. You can't hide from it. And for some of us, that leaves us feeling very uncomfortable. And that's okay. That's an okay, un uncomfortable place to be. 
Because I think that's going to reveal to us where our hope is. And he says, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. What Paul's saying is, we're, we're good with God. Not that we've done all this right stuff, but we know our conscience is clear. God, ha- he knows our intentions. He knows his gospel message. And I want that to be clear to you as well. I want you guys to know our hearts. I want, to, I want you to know how sincere we are. It's really what Paul's getting at here. So now let's jump. Verse 12. We're not trying to commend ourselves. So they're not trying to build themselves up. But rather, we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. Not really the us aspect, but this true gospel piece is really what Paul's after here. So that you can answer those, look at this, this this screams Romans 12. So you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. In other words, hey, what does God really have in mind here? What is this gospel about? If I'm preaching a gospel that's trying to build myself up. If Paul's preaching a gospel that's trying to loft himself, that's not the gospel message. That is a pattern of the world, trying to build ourselves up, trying to put a Picasso on the wall and say, look how important I am. I didn't paint it, but I hung it on my wall. Verse 13 says, if we are, and they were being accused of being crazy, literally, out of their mind. And this is where they would see the actions of Paul. It doesn't make sense. Paul's actions are foolish in the ways of the world. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. There's one time as he's basically, he's hauled out of the city of Lystra. He's stoned, thrown out of the city, and left for dead. He lived because I believe in, in a, a mighty work of the Holy Spirit was actually healed him enough to where he's probably still bruised and broken, whatever. But he, he was thrown out of the city, stoned. When they stone people that day, they're dead. That's what it is. They stone them to death. It's not like, here, I threw one rock at you. There, that's enough. They would stone you till you were dead. So they threw him out of the city, totally believing he was dead. He stands up, and what does he do? Goes back to the city. And that's insanity to the world. The world looks at us like, you're nuts. That's like getting into a fight in a back alley, and the next day you go there and get beat up again. It's really, the, that's the picture. Well, why do you do that? I don't know. And to our world, it looks like that doesn't make any sense. And so Paul and his, those who are preaching the gospel, it's like, that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. And so he says, if we, are, if we are, in fact, out of our mind, as some say it is, tell you why I'm out of my mind, I'm willing to go back into that dark alley. I'm willing to go back into Lystra. I guess because my mind is different. I think differently than the world does. I see a different purpose. I have a different motivation than just to spare my life. My motivation is to take this gospel and to testify with with word and action. If we're in the right mind, in other words, if I think like you want me to think, then it's for you. If I think like you want me to think, like the world thinks, then it's just to gain and build up my own self-esteem. And here we go. These are the, the treasures coming up here now, starting in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Paul's writing is like, you want to know why I'm crazy? You want to know why I do the things that I do? You want to know why I'm willing to say the things that I'm willing to say? It's because I am compelled by the love of Christ. And there's, there's a twofold aspect here. I have an illustration. It might go very poorly. It might confuse everyone. I think we're going to go with it here. We're going to try it. Because I think it can be helpful if we can understand it. But so, it says, for Christ's love compels us. And then he's going to go into this definition. But do you understand this idea of Christ's love? Well, oftentimes we stop here. Oh, Jesus loves me. And because he loves me, now I am motivated to testify. I am motivated to do the right things. That is not inaccurate. Is that a double negative? If it is, it's a very appropriate one. That is not inaccurate. That is true. But it doesn't just stop. It's incomplete 
I will say, when we look at just being motivated, Jesus loves me, and because Jesus loves me, now I will go do this. Here's, how, here's what Paul's getting at. I'm compelled by Christ's love. Jesus loves me, and I love him. It's a two-way street. I am motivated because Christ loves me. Because God loved me first, I will also love him. We see that also elsewhere in the scripture. But because Jesus loves me, and I love him, you know what? Now I care about what he thinks. You hear that? I care about what he thinks. And this is astounding. I'm going to go to the illustration. It, it might be too soon. I was going to wait for it later. Here's the idea. Okay, at least the best I can think about it. Someone put these ropes together and then tangle them all up. That's okay. You got what you need. All right, so we have, the, the, this is the core. This is the way, you know, so we'll back way up. In the beginning, God created, Okay. God created the heavens and the earth. And then he made mankind in his own image. But then something happened. This is the gospel message. You've seen it in these little tracks and whatever else. Something happened. Mankind sinned. You know what happened? The, the, the line, this relationship. Don't think of this as a rope as we're climbing because if you, if you get stuck on that, you're not going to get anywhere, okay? The relationship between God and man was severed. It was cut. You ever have a rope break? Isaac shot a, a deer earlier this year, and I was dragging it out with the rope. Um, usually, I'm using power equipment, like a, a buggy, instead of my own stuff, because as physically prowess as I have, I'd rather drag it out with a machine, okay? But as I'm dragging it out with the machine, the rope broke, okay? Well, I can't just take those two ends and just uh, get back to, that doesn't work. It's, it's severed. It is not serving its purpose anymore. And so, likewise, our relationship, when sin came in, our relationship, it was severed. It was broken. And it was broken for thousands of years. But God had a plan from the beginning, and he sent Christ, and Christ mended the relationship. We'll see more evidence on that in a little bit. He mended the relationship. So now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I can have this relationship back with him. All right? So he has this love relationship that comes down to me, and I have a love for him because of what he was willing to do for me, and I have this love relationship. And now I am compelled because of this relationship, and this is what blows my mind, and this was kind of new to me. It's, it's old. I should have known a long time ago, but it, was, it struck me fresh. I love Jesus, and he loves me. And then I look around, and he loves every one of you just as much as me. This is where it changes. Because sometimes we get stuck on this fact, this belief, not a fact. We get stuck on this belief that either Jesus loves you more than he loves me, or he loves me more than he loves you. But in this midst of this relationship, I have an obligation. Do I just stay here? Oh, I got a good love relationship with Jesus. Or do I look at others and say, oh, you know, my job is to help you have this love relationship with him as well. Do you follow? I want to offer the relationship that I have with Christ with others because what he thinks of others matters. And he loves them just as much as he loves me. Do you see that parallel? So it's not just one rope where I have Jesus and I'm good. It's designed to be somewhat triangulated where I offer them the way to Christ as well. There's still only way, one way to Jesus or one way to God, and that's through, through Christ. I realize it's imperfect. We may touch on that a little bit here more because we're going to see this this picture of reconciliation. So it's Christ's love that compels me. Not only his love for me, but my love for him. If you don't love Christ, here's my prayer for you today. It's a simple one. Just say, if you leave with nothing else today, just say, Lord, I want to learn to love you. And pray it. Jesus, will you help me to love you? That's a, that's a prayer that God wants to honor. 
I want you to hear that, okay? And then he gives this example, and this is mind-blowing. He says, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. In other words, Jesus Christ gave his life for us. We were all dead, okay? We were severed off. But he gave himself so that that relationship could be mended, that could be restored. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That we can have relationship. If we're motivated just by fear of what God's going to do to you, you're missing a relationship that God wants all the more. He wants you to be motivated by your awe and your respect and your fear of him. He wants that. But he also wants you to be motivated by your deep love for him and his deep love for you. So, I love this. This is where it changes. Because I have this love relationship, I understand this relationship with him. Now, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. You know what that means? When I look into the face of each person here, God has that same love for you as he does for me, as he does for you. This is, this is crazy. I've had moments like this. I'm sitting at a stoplight and some guy walks across in front of me and says, like, seriously, the light's red, okay? I should be able to go, but you, you decide to walk in front of me now. And the Lord, I kid you not, the Lord will hit me with this idea. He's not just a mere mortal. He's someone that I care deeply about. There's something significant here. Oh, let that resonate in your heart. Some of us, we need this relationship restored. Some of us, we feel like we've had this relationship restored, but we could care less of these other people that are around us. This, if you want to talk about a message of evangelism, this is it. But it's not evangelism training. It's evangelism in the heart. And it's got to start there. Anyway, so from now on, because of this love relationship, I'm compelled from this love of Christ. I can't even look at someone without thinking, wow, that's an image bearer of God. It's nuts. Though we once regarded people in this way, we once regarded Christ in this way, Paul says. So we do so no longer. That can't be the case any longer. And then look at this gem. And so we, can we take this one, we separate it. I don't think it needs to be separated. I think it's supposed to be together. I think Paul wrote these together on purpose, okay? Which makes sense because it's in the same chapter, same book. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. You have a restored relationship. It's new. It wasn't there before. Now it's new. For some of you, maybe you have never had that new relationship with Jesus Christ, that new creation. And so what he's basically saying is you have, once you accept Christ, you have the new relationship. It has been mended. You have access to it. And then all these people next to you, your job then isn't to preach necessarily at them, but it is to testify of this new relationship that you have and say, hey, guess what? Jesus wants to have that relationship with you. Hey, and guess what? Jesus wants to have this relationship with you. And I'm compelled to tell it because he loves me and I love him. I'm compelled to tell it, to show it, to live it. Because of that same, the old is then gone and the new is come. Now, as I look at everyone, it's like there's no mere mortal any longer, which is, I think, how C.S. Lewis puts it. There's no mere mortal any longer. Now I have people that Jesus wants to have a new creation built into. It's like that changes everyone's face. It's, in, it's amazing. And then don't forget this in verse 18. All of this good stuff... Oh, I have this relationship. Look what I did. Mm. Oh, I helped someone else take the rope. Oh, look what I did. You mean you to repeat that? Okay. 
It's meaningless because this is all God's work. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. God's got the power to restore relationships. I don't. God's got the power to restore and mend that relationship with me to him. I don't. All of my effort, I don't have that kind of power. All of this is from God. And oh boy, look at this word. He reconciled us to himself. You have a relationship in your life that's been severed or broken. I mean, a, a painful one. You know, some of them is like, yeah, glad that's over, okay? That, you can't relate to that well. Think of the hurt that goes along in those moments when that relationship is severed. What God is basically saying is you had that painful type, it was gone. I reconciled that relationship. I restored it to us. And I restored it to himself through Christ and gave us then, get this, the ministry of reconciliation. I cannot reconcile your relationship with the Lord. I can't do it, but he can. So my job is to show you Jesus offers a reconciled relationship here. All you have to do is say yes. Start that relationship with him. That God, let's back up, let's get that in context. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, that's our message. It's a testimony. It's to testify this reconciled relationship that I have with, with Christ and that he has offered, he has made with me, not of my own work, but the work that he had done for me. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And ambassadors are representation. It's someone who goes and represents Christ. If I'm going to be a, an, an ambassador, that means I need to go out and have not only the knowledge of Christ's love for me, but a love for him. If I don't love him, I'm not in no position, no right to be an ambassador. I can't represent him without that restored relationship. That's where it starts. But once, once the Lord works in me and I can have that love relationship with him, then I can be an ambassador. Then I have something that's like, hey, uh, this is a hard life to live. Don't live it alone. Let Jesus restore that relationship with you as well. Therefore, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And if this doesn't hit us, oh, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that's saying? Jesus, who had no sin. You know what? That, that relationship, that it was severed, in order for that to be restored, there was only one way. It had to be a, 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 the perfect act of God to restore it. And he made the one who had no sin to mend that sin severing on our behalf. He became all that I am depraved, all of my sin. He became it. That's, that's, that's yucky. And then you add on, he became your sin on top of my sin and your sin on top of my sin. He became sin, though he had no sin. He became it, all that is wretched among us, so that we could be reconciled to God. And then that final one, so that in him, we might become the righteousness. Here he was righteous, perfect, 
sinless. You know what righteous means? Righteous is, we don't comprehend righteous. Okay? Back in the 80s and 90s, righteous. Okay? We were clueless. I know I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. I'm sorry for those who are in 2000. It's like, you're an idiot. I know. But we have this idea of righteousness. Oh, it's all, look, it's there. they're so righteous. No, there's none righteous. No, not one. But yet the one who was righteous, perfect, took our place, which was messy and sinful, so that we could become righteous. What? Why did he do it? Because he was compelled by love. Why do I do it? It better be that I'm compelled by love. Otherwise, it's empty. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'm stopping short. I know I have more verses here, but that's okay. I've, I've spent long enough. I don't know what the Lord is doing with you with this passage of Scripture today, where it's hit you, if you even need it. I don't know. I, have, I do not have those answers. But my, my heart is, if you do not know what it means to have a reconciled relationship with God, let today be the day that you say, Lord, I, I want to have that. I don't know what it means. I want to have it. I'm willing to, to talk. I have elders that are willing to talk. We have anyone. You can just say, hey, can we talk? And they say, I don't know what to say. They'll point you to someone. It's okay. Okay, we're, we're part of the body of Christ. That's an okay place to be. Just understand the love that Jesus has for you. Oh, he has reconciled it. He has done this so that you can be reconciled to him in that love relationship. Worship him as we worship together.